Today, as we continue in our series, Easter Eyes, we come to the trial of Jesus as he stands before Pilate and the release of this notorious prisoner named Barabbas. And it's here, as you and I look at Easter through the eyes of Barabbas, that we come face to face with the grace of God. You remember last time the religious police had arrested Jesus. Uh, There was a trial. They found him guilty of blasphemy. But they had no authority to carry out any sentence. And so they bring him to the Roman governor, Pilate. And they had these trumped up charges of treason. That Jesus is a king and he's going to try to overthrow the Roman government, which would cause uh, obviously some... uh, heartburn for the Romans, and so then they would get rid of Jesus. It was all out of envy. You see, today, as you and I look at this story together in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 11, we're going to see lots of different people, their responses, their reactions to Christ, and then we're going to hone in on Barabbas. But what I want to do is, through the Bible app, I want you to listen with me to the scripture this morning. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? the governor asked him. Jesus replied, You have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, Which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him! Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him! Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere, and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. See, I want to start with the setting. And to do that, I want you to look at this picture with me. For many of you, it's not really going to mean a whole lot. It's just a old stone floor. But if we look at the next picture, the same thing, you see me standing there. This is the very place where Pilate was standing with Jesus. I'm going to tell you, 
when you have an opportunity to go to the Holy Land, it's an amazing thing when you stand in the places where Jesus stood. But it's one thing to be there on the shores of Galilee, to be there on the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus preached his sermon. But it's entirely another thing to stand here knowing that there was a man named Pilate who was called to be a leader and who chose to be a coward, who knew that Jesus was innocent, and yet he caved to the crowd out of fear. But then to realize in my own life, there have been times where I've caved, where I've been Pilate, where I was called to lead, and I, and I didn't lead the way that God wanted me to lead because I was choosing to walk in fear instead of walking by faith. And you know what I'm talking about. Now, what I want you to realize is that Pilate would have been very familiar with the words and the works of Jesus Christ. Even before he met Jesus, he would have heard reports of Jesus. Because you see, the Jewish people were a hard people to rule over. Just like you and I, we don't want to be slaves of anybody, and so we tend to rebel. And there had been several insurrections, and so this was the time of the year, Passover, where Jerusalem swelled in capacity. Many Jews showed up for the Passover, and so they would have been on high alert to make sure that there was no riots. Do you remember when Jesus came into town riding on the donkey? There was a pretty big commotion, right? You think Pilate would have known about that? He would have had spies out that would have told him about what was going on. When Jesus flipped over the the tables in, in the temple, Pilate would have heard about that. And he had all these reports coming to him about this man named Jesus. Just like today, there are many people who have heard the reports of Jesus, this man who came and was born in Bethlehem and who died on a cruel Roman cross and three days later rose from the dead. And the question that they have to answer is the same question that Pilate had to answer. It's the greatest, most important question in all of your life. If I were to ask you right now, what is the most pressing question in our country, in our community? The greatest, most important question that we need to wrestle with in our country right now, what would you say it was? Some of you would say it's the environment. Hopefully you don't want to get rid of the cows. (laughs) Some of you would say that it is the economy. Some of you would say it's education. And those are all big questions. Those are important things, but it's not the greatest, most important question of life. The most important question of life is the question that Pilate asked if you open your Bible back up to verse 22. Matthew 27, verse 22, then what should I do with Jesus? It's the greatest question of life. Why? It's a personal question. Notice what he says here, what should I do with Jesus? But this isn't just a question that Pilate should ask. It's a question that every one of us should ask. Because here's the thing. It doesn't matter what Pilate did with Jesus. It doesn't matter what your pastor's doing with Jesus. And it doesn't matter what your parents are going to do with Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? You see, it's also a particular question. Because when I was growing up and when my kids were growing up, we all heard the same question, right? And you probably heard it too growing up. Your parents said this to you. When you grow up, what are you going to do, right? And what were they talking about? Your career. But you notice, this isn't just what are you going to do. This is what are you going to do with Jesus. It's not about your career. It's about Jesus Christ. Greatest question. But it's also a pertinent question because the answer to this question determines 
heaven or hell. Your eternal destination. What hinges on this question is eternal delight or eternal damnation. That's how heavy and important and great this question is. So how did Pilate answer it? He didn't. He avoided it. First thing he does is he sends Jesus to Herod. He's willing to make friends with his enemy in order to not have to deal with Jesus. And that's what some of you have done in your life. You're like, I just don't want to deal with Jesus. Because if I have to deal with Jesus, I've got to deal with my sin. I've, I've got to change my life. And Jesus is just going to mess things up. I don't want to deal with Jesus. Maybe some of you are, are like Pilate. I'm busy. I'm busy with all these other really trivial things in life that are not going to matter. And I'm so busy with the molehills that I haven't taken time to deal with the mountain in my life. But what happened? Herod sent him right back. Here's the thing. You can dismiss Jesus, and you can dismiss Jesus, and you can dismiss Jesus, but Jesus Christ loves you enough to pursue you to the ends of this earth. And he just keeps showing back up. And the question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? And so... When it didn't work just to dismiss him and, and, and turn him over to somebody else, he does the second thing to avoid Jesus, and that is to let the crowd make a decision for him. Now, as a parent, I've watched all three of my kids accept Christ. There is no greater joy than to know that your kids walk in the truth. But here's the thing. I couldn't save them. They had to make that decision for themselves. And there are some people today that are like, man, my parents are walking with Jesus and, and that's going to be enough if I just hold on to their shirt tails, I can get into heaven. But you see, you can't let somebody else make a decision for you when it comes to Jesus. And that's what Pilate tried to do here. It's amazing to me all of the steps that he took. And he went from hearing these reports about a person to actually experiencing the very presence of God. He stared Jesus in the eye. You saw that it wasn't a very big place where they stood. They were shoulder to shoulder, right next to each other. How many times in that conversation do you think Pilate turned and looked into the eyes of the Savior as he asked him questions, as he asked questions of the crowd? It's amazing to me how he tried to avoid... He, he dismissed Jesus, sending him to Herod. That didn't work, so he tried to get the crowd to make a decision. Then he even dismisses the wisdom of his wife who comes in and what she come in to, to do, to warn her husband. I've had this dream. God's revealed something to me. I have revelation, and you need to know this, husband, because what you're doing right now is not right. And what does he do? Does to his wife what he did to Jesus. I'll just dismiss her. I don't want to listen to her. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. Guys, I'm going to tell you, sometimes God speaks words of wisdom to you through your spouse. And the question is this, are we going to listen? Are we just dismissing the people in our life that have a word from the Lord? And do you notice how she got the word from the Lord? <laughs> wasn't fun. Sometimes you and I, we go through this wrestling, this, this tormenting, this hard time. And what happens? In the midst of that, God speaks some truth into our life. God reveals things to us, but what are we going to do with that truth? And sometimes what we do, especially in marriage, is we, we, we don't share that with our spouse. We think they're not going to listen. 
And we don't know the whole story, but here's this woman who was willing to share truth with her husband even though he was going to dismiss it. Keep sharing truth. Don't make it the decision to share truth from God based on how other people will respond or other people will react. So then what does he do? He washes his hands. But what you and I need to understand here is that Herod did make a decision. By choosing to dismiss Jesus, he chose the crowd over Christ. And what he does is he comes up with his own way of dealing with the issue. And he, re, he responds to and relies on the customs of what he's comfortable with. It was customary. This is something he did every year. And so he falls back to what he's always done. You ever been there? It's easy when, when we, we're dealing with Jesus, we're dealing with Christ, and it's not comfortable to go back to what we're comfortable with, right? We don't really want to deal with the conviction in our life. And here's the custom. I'm going to release a prisoner to you, okay? Why didn't he just say, I'm releasing Jesus? Well, that wasn't what the crowd wanted. Who's he catering to? Who's he caving to? The crowd. And so what he does is he says, you know, there's this guy, Barabbas. And, and I'm pretty sure if I give them the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, they'll choose Jesus. You see... He's trying to make a decision without making a decision. And that never works. And so ultimately what he does here is he says, here's Barabbas, the criminal, here's Christ. Here's the guilty one, here's God. Here's the murderer, here's the miracle maker. Who do you want? We want the criminal, we want the guilty one, we want the murderer. His plan fails, right? When you and I rely on what's comfortable, just our customs, and how many times in our life do we go back to the customs of this world instead of our conscience based on the Word of God? What if he had chosen to rely on his conscience instead of the customs, instead of the culture? And so he caves to the crowd. Why? Fear. He makes a decision based on fear instead of making a decision based on faith. Because as I mentioned earlier, Jerusalem had swelled in population. There were roughly a million Jews that had now entered into the city for Passover. There were probably less than a thousand Roman guards. And the crowd's starting to get out of control. And what's he focused on? I got to keep the peace. I got to keep the peace. What's he not focused on? The Prince of Peace. And how many of us today were trying to keep the peace through our customs, through our way to what's comfortable for us because we've taken our eyes off of the Prince of Peace? And so he defaults leadership. He chooses to listen to the crowd instead of listening to his conscience. He knew his wife gave him the wise words from God. This man is innocent. He knew that the Jewish leaders were just envious of Jesus. And rather than call the crowd out for who they were and say, you know what, you guys are a bunch of fakes. And I'm not catering to you because you won't be honest And I'm going to be a real leader here and I'm going to make some hard decisions that you're not going to like. He didn't do that. He caved. And that can happen to you and I in our life. Here's the thing about leadership. Leadership is not about being liked. Leadership is about doing the right thing. And there are some of us in our parenting, we're caving, right? Because our little crowd, our peeps, our little people, (laughs) our kids, they're having a little riot there. 
And we're trying to appease them and we're trying to, well, what's going to make the crowd happy? I just want, I just want my kids to like me. I, I want them, I just want us to be best friends. And so what happens? Our leadership is based on being liked, not on leading. Now we have a massive problem in our culture today. We have a massive problem in our country today of a lack of leadership. We have a political mess and everybody keeps talking about draining the swamp. They recognize it, they just don't know how to fix it. The reason that we have the problems in our country today, I believe, is because of the pilot problem. What is the pilot problem? The pilot problem is we've got a lot of people in Congress that want to be liked and not very many people that want to lead. The same thing is happening in our homes. And the sad reality is this problem in our country is becoming the problem in the church. And it's really easy for pastors to want to be people pleasers. When pastors are first called into the ministry, I don't know a single man that that went into the ministry with the words or the thought, man, people aren't going to like me. They went in idealistic. They went in thinking, man, I'm going to preach the word of God. I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for people. There's not going to be any resistance, right? Wake up call. They crucified Christ. You're not Christ. Something bad's probably going to happen to you, right? And they run up against us like, I can't figure out why people don't like me. I can't figure out why I'm getting opposition. I can't figure out why I get hate mail. And what do I need to do to make people like me? That's not what you're called to do. You're called to lead. And I'm going to tell you something about leadership. Leadership sometimes can be incredibly lonely. And it would have been really lonely for Pilate because it would have been Pilate and the crowd. But when you want to be liked, guess what? You just join the crowd. You champion the cause of the crowd. And what was the cause of the crowd? Crucify Christ. What cause are you going to champion? Because here's the reality, church. We are not called to be crowd pleasers. We are called to be Christ pleasers. What are you going to do with Jesus? See, the second thing that we see here in the midst of the setting is the silent Savior. And this has always amazed me, the contrast between the chaos of the crowd and the calmness of Christ. Which of those two pictures would you say is the reality of your life right now? Do you have a heart that's in turmoil like the crowd? Or is there that calm confidence like Jesus Christ? Why was Christ so calm, so confident that that he didn't need to respond to the people accusing him? And it it puzzled Pilate. Pilate was like, man, don't you hear everything they're saying? Don't you want to respond? Because, see, Pilate did everything based on the flesh. And that's what the flesh wants to do. The flesh wants to react. But Jesus was silent because he had the answers. The crowd and Pilate were busy talking. Why? Because they were trying to figure out the answer to the questions. But Jesus had the answer. And here's the thing, church. If Jesus has the answer, then why don't we listen to the Lord? Why don't we sit at the Savior's feet like Mary and just be still and listen to what he has to say? Can I ask you a question? In your personal prayer time, how much of your prayer time do you spend talking and how much of your prayer time do you spend listening? Because I think the vast majority of us, it's talk, 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 talk. And then we walk away. That's not prayer. That's dominating the conversation. At what point are you going to listen to what Jesus has to say about the things that you want to talk about? 
You see, I think maybe the most spiritual thing we can do this week is shut up. Just be still and know God, right? Know that he is God. Silence and solitude, it's almost a foreign concept. We have been so trained that technology will somehow free up our lives and we'll have more time. We've become so tethered to technology that we don't have any time. And sometimes you've got to leave some things, maybe like your cell phone, maybe like the, the, the people around you. And you've got to go to a quiet place. Jesus often went to a solitary place, and he did it at crazy times where everyone's like, Jesus, it's not time to be silent. He's like, that's not based on the crowd. That's not based on the craziness of life. That's not based on the circumstances. That is based on knowing the Father's will. I want to make sure that I'm connected to his will. Because guess what? If I get a degree or two away from the heart of the Father and I take more and more steps, pretty soon I'm going to be very far from his heart. It's here that you and I also see the sinner, Barabbas. Matthew says that he was a notorious prisoner. That's a great way to describe someone, right? It leaves a lot to the imagination. Uh, Mark gets right down to it. He says he's a murderer. And John says he's a, a robber. He's a bad dude, right? This is a thug. This is not the kind of guy that you want hanging around at your house dating your daughter, okay? This is the kind of guy that you're like, I'm comfortable with him being locked up. It's really easy to see his guilt, right? I mean... Think about this. I can't think of a single person that has ever thought of naming their child Barabbas. Can you imagine that? Hey, honey, if it's a boy, what about Barabbas? Can you imagine the first day of school? Hey, new kid, what's your name? Barabbas. Downhill from there, right? That should tell us something about this guy. But see, here's the thing. We recognize the guilt of Barabbas, but do we recognize the Barabbas in us? Something I recognized a long time ago in my life is it's, it's really easy to see everybody else's sin. Everyone else's sin is so clear, and yet mine seems to be so cloudy. It's easy for me to see the guilt of Barabbas, but do I see my guilt? Because guess what, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Would you do something with me today? Would you be honest with me? If you have sinned in your life at one point, would you just put your hand up? Hold your hand up high and look around. What did we just do? We just declared this to be true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all Barabbases. And what does that lifestyle lead to? That doing it my way leads to being bound up, right? And how many of us are bound up today because we're doing things our way instead of God's way? Following our way instead of Jesus, the life, the truth, and the way. And you can argue that your prison is different than Barabbas's, but here's the reality. You're still locked up. And some of you are locked up emotionally. Some of you are locked up physically. Some of you are locked up spiritually. Some of you are locked up sexually. Some of you are bound up today financially. And the reason you're bound up financially is because you won't give God your first fruits. You want to give him your leftovers. And that seems very judgmental of me. How do I know that? Because I lived it. Because when Angel and I were first married, we were making 600 bucks a month. And we weren't making the, beating the bills. Every month, we went $50 into the hole. I mean, at the end of the year, we were a month behind. And I looked at my wife. I grew up in a Christian home. I watched my dad sacrificially give first fruits to the Lord every year. Every month. Every week. 
And I looked at my wife and I said, we can't afford to tithe. My wife was listening to Christian radio. I was out working. And an amazing Christian man, Larry Briquette, who's now gone on to be with the Lord, was on the radio. And he was sharing about first fruits and about tithing and about God's plan for a life, being stewards of his money. And he said, I've got this Bible study you can do with your spouse. And, you know, if you can't afford it, just ask us. We'll send it to you. But if you can, give us 50 bucks. That that covers the basic cost of it. I came home. My wife shared with me that she'd ordered this and spent 50 bucks. I was furious, livid, angry. Honey, we're going 50 bucks every month in the hole, and you went and spent 50 bucks on this stupid Bible study? I said those words. We got the Bible study. I remember the day it came in the mail. I did not want to see it. I was mad at it. And my wife came and said, do you want to do this with me? Sure. You've been there, guys. I was a jerk about it. But somewhere in that study of God's word, God softened my heart and he reminded me of these principles. And you know what happened? Before we even got done with the first day, I said this. I said, God, I, I want to give you my first fruits. I don't know how it's going to work. If we go bankrupt, we go bankrupt. But that's not what you're telling me here. You love me and I'm going to trust you. At the end of that first month, we weren't behind. Within just a couple of months, we weren't behind at all. There's never been a time in our lives that we've been, quote unquote, behind, unable to take care of things. God's always provided, always been faithful. But I'm going to tell you, you can't give to get. But some of you are bound up today because you won't give him your first fruits. Some of you are bound up when it comes to pornography and, and fornication. Because you won't trust Jesus to be the, the lover of your heart. He's the only one that can truly meet that deep core need to be loved. And so here's what happens. Some of you are trying to get a feel good by, by feeding the flesh. It's never going to work. There's never been a time in my life when I spent time with God and walked away and it felt good that I ever felt guilty about it. But there's been times in my life where I've gone to other feel goods and there's always guilt associated with that. It doesn't feel good very long, does it? Sin is only fun for a season. And so what happens is you put yourself out there and you let people use you and abuse you. Why? Because they said that they were going to love you, but the truth is it wasn't love, it was lust. And lust always takes, love always gives. And so then Satan comes along and he whispers this lie into your life that, that you are now used. You are somehow broken and now it doesn't matter anymore because you don't have worth, so you might as well just give yourself. Now, I've got something I want to show you. This is a $100 bill. I stole it from the youth pastor. Just kidding. Ben's like, you did? Awesome. Knew I'd put that in the couch somewhere. What's it worth? 100 bucks, right? What about now? It's been used. It's been abused. It's been spit on. Doesn't look so good right now. Can I ask you, what's it worth? Value didn't change one bit, did it? See, if I handed this to you and it was a nice, crisp, iron note or it was wrinkled up like this, it wouldn't matter. 
Because you know the value is not based on what you see. The value is stamped into it. And here's what you need to understand today. That your value is not based on what people say about you. It is not based on what people do to you. It is based on what Jesus Christ did for you. Some of you right now, you're bound up in bitterness. You know why you're bound up in bitterness? Told you it was yours. That's called a gift. I didn't really spit on it, so don't worry. But some of you, you're bound up in unforgiveness today. Bitterness, because you won't forgive people. And, and why won't you forgive people? Well, Because you want to hold on to the hurts. Because you feel like they're just going to get to go free. And so what happens is you live in the pain of the past. You're bound up. When you and I live our life the way Barabbas did, doing what we want, we find ourselves locked up in these prisons. And there's lots of different kinds of prisons. Jesus didn't come so that you and I could, could live life in prison. He came to set us free. It's exactly what happened in Barabbas' life. And so if Jesus has set you free, what are you doing in that prison? You see, it's here that we see the sentence. And what we need to understand about the sentence is this, that Barabbas couldn't hear what Pilate said. His cell was just far enough away that he could hear the crowd, but he couldn't hear Pilate. And so I want you to put yourself in Barabbas' shoes for a moment. Put yourself in prison with Barabbas. And I want you to hear just the voice of the crowd so that when Pilate said, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas, he didn't hear that. He just heard the people shouting, give us Barabbas. And then when Pilate said, well, what should I do with Jesus? And they yelled, crucify him. He didn't hear, what should I do with Jesus? He just heard, crucify. So you're in your cell and you hear, give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. What do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to face the worst death possible, right? And I want you to picture Barabbas in that cell and the guards are coming and he can hear their footsteps and they're getting closer. The key goes into the lock and he hears it unlock. And he hears that, 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 Steel gates swing open on the hinges. And one of the guards steps in and he knows it's over. And the guard says this, Barabbas, you're free to go. What? Barabbas, you're free to go. What, what, is this some kind of a cruel joke? I heard the crowd. I heard them calling my name. I heard them shouting for me to be crucified. No, Barabbas, you get to go free because that man, Jesus of Nazareth, is dying in your place today. That's the gospel. That is grace. And it is scandalous, it is unfair, and it is absolutely shocking. And I want to know, are you still shocked by grace or has the shock worn off? Because for many of us today, we're no longer shocked by grace. We say the words, but, but we don't really live in grace because we're, we're not shocked by it. Why? Because we've cheapened grace. And some of us are cheapened grace by saying, you know what, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. Jesus will forgive me. That's a cheap grace. He paid the price for that sin. And it cost him his life. It's not a cheap grace. It's a costly grace. Some of us are cheapening grace today by saying, you know what, somehow I feel like I deserve grace, but Barabbas doesn't deserve grace. Because we see other people as bigger sinners than us. But what does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? We all are deserving of death. And so when you and I 
Think of grace. I want to know, are you still shocked by grace or is the shock wore off? And I think one of the reasons that the shock wears off is because we cheapen grace and therefore we don't consider the cost of grace. And I think another reason is because we're not listening to the sound of grace today. We have convinced ourselves in the church that what happened before I got up here to preach, the worship, that's the sound of grace. That is not the sound of grace. That is the sound of gratitude. Gratitude as a result of grace. But what is the sound of grace? We don't listen to the sound of grace because we don't like the sound of grace because the sound of grace is painful and we're a culture that just want to be happy. We don't want to live in the reality of the cross, but here's what we're going to do for a moment. We're going to listen to the sound of grace. I want you to close your eyes. This is the sound of grace. And so I want to ask you, you still... Shocked by that? Does that still cut into the core of your heart? Who actually crucified Christ? Was it the Roman soldiers? Was it Barabbas? Was it Herod? Was it Pilate? Was it the crowd? Or was it me and you? Was it our sin? And what we like to do is we like to say, well, it was our sin collectively. And yes, Jesus died for all of our sin, but we don't personalize it. And therefore, there's no shock to it that it was my sin that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross. You ever stop to consider this thought that Jesus, the creator of the universe, who made everything when he came to earth, pretty much borrowed everything. That's crazy to me. I mean, when he was born, he had to borrow a place to be born, right? You're not using that feeding trough? I'm just going to use that for a crib for a little bit here. He borrowed the house that he lived in. He even borrowed a boat to preach from. I mean, what preacher doesn't have a pulpit? Some of you think, well, I don't. I have a pulpit. I don't use it unless it's a funeral. You, you don't want to see the pulpit. It means there's a funeral. But he borrowed the fish, the loaves. Hey, Can I borrow those fish and loaves? I promise I'll give them back, right? He borrowed them to do a miracle. When he came into Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey that he borrowed. When he went into the upper room to have the Passover and and institute communion, he borrowed the room. Do you get the picture? There's a great hymn, one you're probably not familiar with, that L.M. Hollingsworth wrote called The Cross Was His Own. And here's what he says We'll just read part of it. They borrowed a bed to lay his head when Christ the Lord came down. They borrowed the ass in the mountain pass for him to ride into town. But the crown that he wore, the cross that he bore were his own. The cross was his own. And that's a great song, but it's wrong. It wasn't Christ's cross. Whose cross was it? It was Barabbas' cross. It was my cross. Do you realize that Christ borrowed your cross? Hey, I'm going to take that from you and I'm going to borrow that so I can bear your sin and buy you back from the slave market of sin. That's the gospel. But that wasn't the last thing that Christ borrowed. What was the last thing Christ borrowed? The tomb, right? Why did he borrow the tomb? Well, if you only need it for three days, you're not going to purchase it, okay? That's the gospel. But we've forgotten that. And you and I, we need to get excited about that today. We need to be shocked by grace. We need to be telling people about grace. Because here's the last part of the story, the substitute. And that was 
that was Jesus that, that came and, and, and he was that substitute sacrifice in our place. But if you ever asked yourself the question, why Barabbas? Was it just because that's what Pilate thought of? Or did God have a plan that he wanted to reveal to you and I? Did God want to make a powerful point by pulling Barabbas out of prison and letting him go free? And I think he did. And in order to share that with you, I want to remind you of who Jesus said he was. Jesus constantly said that he was the son of God. Remember when he said, no one will snatch you out of my father's hands? He was talking about God, right? And the Jews got really upset and they were going to stone him to death, only they couldn't. And he was saying there, I am the son of God. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Abba, Father. Abba there is an intimate term that only the child of the father or parent can use. And he was saying, I am the son of the father. Why, why does that matter? What does that have to do with Barabbas? Well, Barabbas' name is made up of two parts in the Jewish culture. Bar, meaning son, and Abbas, meaning father. Barabbas was a son of the father. And I want you to understand that what God was saying is the son of the father died in the place of a son of the father. Why a son of the father? Because we were created in God's image to be his sons and to be his daughters. And what you need to understand is that God was sending a very clear message. Jesus Christ didn't just die for one person, Barabbas. He died for all. But have you responded to that? What are you going to do with Jesus? Pilate washed his hands of him. We don't know what Barabbas did. Maybe Barabbas went on to live for the Lord. Maybe he cheapened grace and went back to his former way of living life. We don't know. And here's the thing. It doesn't really matter what Barabbas did with Jesus. It matters what you're going to do with Jesus. And here's the question. Are you going to cheapen grace or champion grace? Are you going to treasure grace today or are you going to trash grace in the way that you live your life? Are you going to be a secret Christian or are you going to be a confident Christian that is bold enough to share Jesus Christ because you want people to experience the same grace that has shocked and rocked your life to the core and changed who you are forever? Now the sad part of the story is the religious leaders. Because they use their influence to to get the crowd to choose a criminal instead of choosing Christ. What are you going to use your lips and your lives? And who are you going to influence them for? Will it be Christ? Or will it just be the things of this world? Are you going to point people to the Savior or point them to sin? And here's what they did. They didn't just say, we'll take the responsibility on us. They took it a step further. We'll put that responsibility on our kids. In other words, we're so committed to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we're willing to crucify our kids. We're willing to curse our kids. What's the greatest gift that you can give to your kids? The world tells us it's an inheritance, right? And so lots of kids are growing up thinking, man, I hope mom and dad are putting a lot away so I can get something when they die, right? I'm going to tell you, when your parents die, the last thing you're going to want is their money. What you wanted was your time with them. And so use that. You got it now. Don't wait for an inheritance. Enjoy it right now. But you know the greatest gift that we can give is not our stuff. My kids don't need more stuff. They might think they need more stuff, but they don't need more stuff. You know the greatest gift that we can give is grace. But here's my fear in the church today. That instead of giving the next generation grace, we're giving them condemnation. Why do I say that? How do we talk about millennials? 
As a church, we are moaning about them instead of ministering to them. And I'm as guilty as you are. And what are we doing? We're condemning the next generation instead of granting grace to the next generation. Have you ever stopped to consider this thought? If we don't give them grace, they will have no grace to give to the next generation. Where are we going to be as a nation? We have a grace problem. That is our greatest problem in our country. And what I want you to understand is it is hard sometimes for us to understand how other people grew up. It wasn't fair for Barabbas to go free, but it's not a fairness issue. Grace is never about fairness. And I want to close with this story. A while back, as I was getting done here at the building and I studied the word and I'm driving out and as I'm getting ready to turn to go home, I see a car sitting off the highway, Highway 26, right out here. And there's a young gal in that car, 17 years old, dropped out of high school, had a baby. And she's got a flat tire. So I go over there and I asked her if if there was anyone that was coming to help her. And she said, no, everyone I've called is busy. And I said, well, I'll help you. Do you have a spare tire? And she said, I I don't know. I think so. What do you mean you think so? Would you know how to change a tire? No. Well, you're just a moron millennial and sit by the side of the highway till you figure it out, right? That's what we're doing today in the church. That's not grace. Grace moves people. Grace picks them up where they are and takes them to where they need to be. And here's the thing. I asked her this question. I said, you have two choices. I can either change the tire for you or I can teach you to change a tire. And she said, I'd love to learn. Just no one's ever given me that opportunity. No one's ever taught me that. We've got to be careful condemning people and judging people because sometimes no one ever showed them how to do that. And the reason you know how to change a tire is someone actually showed you how to do it, right? And so I showed her how to change the tire. She changed the tire herself. Man, she felt so good about changing this tire. And there was a problem. Her, her regular tire had a hole in the sidewall. It was broken. And the other problem is the universal problem that no one wants to sell as a car with a real tire for spare. That's a whole other sermon. Sorry. So I told her, you can't drive on that donut for very long. You need to just go to town and, and you need to get another tire. And she said, well, I don't get paid till the end of the month. Can I, can I wait till then? And I'm like looking and it's like the third of the month. I'm like, no, you can't wait that long. And so I said, here's what I'll do. You follow me into town. I will buy you a tire and put road hazard warranty on it. So if anything happens, you're covered. And she said this, why would you do that? And I look back and here's what you can see. The very top of this building is what? A cross. It's all you could see. I said, you see that cross? That's why. And I shared the gospel with her. Here's what Christ did for me. I was broke down by the side of the road. I was that moron that couldn't figure out how to fix it myself because guess what? I can't, I can't fix my sin. I needed a savior. I needed Jesus and here's what he did in my life. And she said this, she said, you don't look like a pastor, you don't live like a pastor. Now, I don't have a problem with not looking like a pastor. I don't even know what a pastor is supposed to look like. That's your homework this week, Ben. Give me a picture of that, Okay. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up going, man, I just hope I look like a pastor someday. But I remember reading the word of God thinking, I hope I can live like a pastor. So I said, what do you mean I don't live like a pastor? And she said, well, 
Every other pastor I know has condemned me, but you've been kind. And I don't share that to pat myself on the back. I share that with a broken heart to say this. What happened? What happened to us in the church? What what if I had just turned and gone home? Not my problem. It's her dad's problem. It's someone else's problem. If I truly have experienced the grace of God, then it is my problem. Then I should be concerned. And I want to say this to your church. If you get grace, you're going to give grace. And if you're not giving grace to the people around you, the problem is that you don't get grace. You've cheapened grace somehow. You're no longer shocked by grace. You don't see how scandalous it is. And it doesn't cause you to want to live in a different way. My prayer is that we would be a grace-based church. And here's the encouraging part for me. When the financial team emailed me just the basics and said, look, this is how much money was given. And I've been a part in picking up those water bottles and all the packages, the diapers, and I know all of that side of it. And I'm like, this church gets giving because this church gets grace. And, And church, I don't say that to puff us up. I say that to cause us to keep being a grace-based church. On Sunday, there's going to be people that show up that are the Easter crowd and it's the only time they come and they don't know what your certain chair is. They have no idea, okay? So when they're sitting in your spot, can you give them some grace? Because you see, here's the thing. You and I need to understand that if they don't have an environment where they're loved on, they're not going to want to come back. So let's be a grace-based place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and thank you for how you encourage us. And I just pray that you'd help us to go out today and to extend your grace to the people around us. For we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.